September 20th is the 263rd day of this year, a period of Sunloop that many refer to as 2023. That means the year is now 72% full, which is as good enough as a segue as any to tell you. This is also National School Backpack Awareness Day. Readers and listeners are asked to make sure that anyone in your lives who use such a conveyance device to do so safely. I'm Sean Tubbs, because of course I am. Who else would write Charlottesville Community Engagement? On today's program, campaign finance reports are out for supervisor candidates in Fluvanna, Louisa, Nelson, and Greene counties. The Minority Business Alliance and the United Way award $40,000 in grants to business owners through the Envision Initiative. The Buildings and Grounds Committee of the University of Virginia Board of Visitors review three big projects at the Fontaine Research Center. And podcast listeners get the audio from two stories from the last installment. In today's first Patreon-fueled shout-out, WTJU 91.1 FM wants you to know about the Charlottesville Albemarle Black Business Expo, coming up on September 22nd at the Ix Park from 2 p.m. to 9 p.m. This year's Black Business Expo includes an exhibition of booths operated by Black-owned businesses, three panel discussions by leading professionals, a business pitch competition, live music entertainment, and more. Acclaimed reggae artist Mighty Joshua headlines the event starting at 7.30 p.m., with newly formed Charlottesville supergroup Afro-Asia opening at 6 p.m. You can learn more about the event at blackbusinessexpo.org, and there is still time to register as a vendor. Early voting begins in two days across Virginia, and there are still a lot of stories to tell about who's running where and how much their campaigns have raised so far. Here are four counties that aren't Albemarle or Charlottesville. In Fluvanna, there are two seats up for election on the Board of Supervisors. Neither incumbent opted to run for re-election to another term. In the Fork Union District, Independent David Michael Goad faces fellow Independent Horace Jefferson Scruggs III to replace outgoing Supervisor Moselle Booker. In the latest campaign finance report, Goad raised $7,164 and spent $5,488 to have an ending balance of $5,488. Scruggs had $3,740 in the bank on July 1st, raised $1,006, spent $1,846, and had $2,900 as of August 31st. Patricia Eager is not running for another term in the Palmyra District. On the ballot are independents James Schoenster and Timothy Michael Hodges. Schoenster began the period with $2,539, raised $1,506, and spent $1,771 to have a balance of $2,274 going into September. Hodges began the period with $1,409, raised $1,800, and spent $1,573. That leaves a balance of $1,635. One out of two supervisor races is on the ballot in Greene County. Independent Davis Lamb is unopposed in his re-election for another term representing the Ruckersville District. Independents Todd Michael Sansom and Francis Xavier McGuigan are on the ballot. 
Samson had $500 in his campaign account on July 1st, raised $2,000, and spent $1,307. That left a balance of $1,192 as of August 31st. McGuigan began with no funds, raised $1,697, and spent $1,175. Three out of the seven supervisor seats are on the ballot in Louisa County. Three candidates are seeking to replace the retiring Eric Purcell in the Louisa District. They are Independents Greg D. Jones Sr. and H. Manning Woodward III. There's also Republican Christopher J. Chris Colsey. Jones is a former member of the Planning Commission and is the former president of the Louisa NAACP. His campaign began the period with $750 and raised $5,285 through August 31st. The campaign spent $2,063 to have an ending balance of $3,971. Woodward had $4,467 on hand on July 1st and did not raise any money during the period. The campaign spent $1,850 in the two months to have $2,916 as of August 31st. Woodward is a member of the Planning Commission. Colsey began the period with $547 in the bank and raised $2,210 in July and August. The campaign spent $1,597 and had an ending balance of $1,160. Republican Chris McCotter is the sole candidate in the Cuckoo District. His campaign had $1,813 on July 1st, raised $1,300 and spent $1,701, leaving a balance of $1,411. Republican Tony Williams is the only candidate listed in the Jackson District. Williams did not turn in a report, which likely meant there was no campaign finance activity. You only have to file if there's something to report. In Nelson County, there are two supervisor seats on the ballot. There are two newcomers seeking the South District position that will be vacated by Robert Barton. They are Independent Mary Catherine Allen and Republican Jessica Ligon. Ligon began July 1st with $557 in the campaign account and raised $1,000 from the Nelson County Republican Committee. There were no expenditures. Allen had $60 in the bank to start the period, raised no money, and spent no money. In the West District, Republican incumbent J. David Parr is seeking another term and has a challenger in independent Mark Franklin. Parr began the campaign finance period with $50, received $1,000 from the Nelson County Republican Committee, and spent $2 at Atlantic Union Bank. That's a balance of $1,048 at the end of August. Franklin had $25 to begin the period, raised no money, spent $4, and had $21 at the end of the period. Eight businesses in the community have been awarded grant funding through a collaboration between the United Way of Greater Charlottesville and the Minority Business Alliance. Libby Edwards-Albaugh, who is the owner of the Tax Ladies LLC, said that this sort of infrastructure is what helps a minority business grow and helps level the playing field. The Tax Ladies LLC was a small business that won a Minority Business Enterprises grant of $5,000 in April of 2020, according to NBC29. That's one of several dozen awards, totaling over $150,000 that have been awarded since the start of the program six years ago. This year's award are the businesses Baker No Bakery, Beyond Fitness with Sabrina, Cavalier Barbershop, Eudemonia, 
Justified by Netta, Kadia's Kitchen, Loyal Beyond Beauty, and Rita's Bright Beginnings. The awards were announced at the Minority Business Alliance's gala on September 15th. You're listening to Charlottesville Community Engagement, and in today's second Patreon field shout out, are you interested in a climate friendly, family friendly way to replace short car rides? Have you heard about e bikes? Wondering what kind might be right for you? Join Livable Seabill on Sunday, October 8th from 2 to 4 p.m. at Tonsler Park in Charlottesville for a fun afternoon with lots of e bike owners you can talk to and several types of e bikes you can take for short test rides. Everyone is invited to the e-bike demo day. Registration is recommended. To learn more, please visit livableseville.org. One more segment to go before the break, before two more segments. It's a very different edition of Charlottesville Community Engagement. In 1986, the land that is now the Fontaine Research Center had been slated for commercial development. The Albemarle supervisors approved a rezoning for a shopping center called Fontaine Forest on a 4-2 vote that January over the objections of both Charlottesville and UVA. At the time, UVA officials expressed interest in the property. I'm going to read from the minutes from a letter written by Raymond Haas, the vice president for administration at UVA. To assure there is no misunderstanding, the university notes that this property is of a type that the university may have an interest in acquiring someday, and while the future uses of properties of this type are not known, the probability exists that the university's uses at some future date could be just as intense as those proposed by the petitioners. The incident led to the ultimate creation and adoption of the three-party agreement between Albemarle, Charlottesville, and UVA that sought to set some guidelines for regional land use decisions, as well as the creation of the UVA Foundation, which later purchased the land. In 2023, the area is still a convergence of the interests of all three entities. Alish Rocher, the University of Virginia architect, said there has been significant investment at the Fontaine Research Park over the years. The UVA Foundation owned the site until January of 2018, when UVA took over the title. Coupled with a significant amount of available land, this really makes Fontaine prime for development. We knew there was a great opportunity for transdisciplinary initiatives, and so in 2018, we embarked upon developing a master plan to envision the future of Fontaine. That master plan is slowly coming into fruition. In March, the Buildings and Grounds Committee of the Board of Visitors reviewed the conceptual plan for three buildings. Earlier this month, the panel approved the schematic designs for one of those buildings and reviewed the plans for two others. One of these is the $350 million Institute of Biotechnology that will be constructed on what's currently a surface lot on the park's western edge. There will be a total of 350,000 square feet of space with food service on the ground floor. 
The Biotech uh, Institute is approximately three times the size of the majority of the other buildings at Fontaine, yet this design approach of the L-shaped plan enabled the building to be a floor shorter and better situated in the surrounding context. It's the first building of the master plan with the newer, taller buildings on the perimeter of the park, ringing the lower buildings in the center. Committee Chair John L. Now III said the design could use some refining to have it fit better into the landscape. It sits at the highest elevation in the Fontaine area, so it's going to be a major message. Candidly, I think we still have a little bit of work to do on the roof to try to mask what's sitting up there and maybe bring down the profile a little bit. The schematic design for the Institute of Biotechnology will come back to the Buildings and Grounds Committee at their December meeting. The future of Fontaine also includes a need for more power to support an ultimate total of 1.5 million gross square feet of floor space. The central energy plant will be located in a back corner of the park. Significantly, this will be our first zero combustion, fossil fuel free energy plant on grounds. We're proposing the cladding of the exterior to be a dark warm bronze to allow the building to recede into the background landscape. That schematic design was the one that was approved by the Buildings and Grounds Committee last week. The master plan also includes a new 1,270-space parking garage to support the full build-out of the Fontaine Research Park, including space for buses to pick up passengers for destinations elsewhere. Now with the imminent Institute of Biotechnology, we need to enable our university transit to access the park, enabling connection with central grounds and the health system, as well as to make the park pedestrian and bicycle friendly. Now, and at least one member of the panel, asked for more work on the aesthetics of the structure, which will be parallel to Fontaine Avenue and screened with trees. Especially when you realize for about three or four months, those trees are gonna have no leaves on them. So the impact, uh, visual impact, becomes even greater. In addition to the new garage, the committee reviewed a new roadway network through the park, including a roundabout. These will be connected to proposed infrastructure just outside of Fontaine. Part of our focus has always been to look for ways to increase transit and pedestrian connectivity to the park. There is currently a bike path <coughs> connecting to West Grounds in the stadium that's heavily used on, uh, on game days. And the city will be constructing sidewalks and bike lanes along Fontaine Avenue as part of their smart scale program and will continue these sidewalks and bike lanes into the park. The University of Virginia has contributed $5 million to the Fontaine Project, which was first awarded to the city in 2016 with a geographic scope that ends at city limits. Preliminary engineering for the project is complete, and the right-of-way phase is underway now. Construction of the $18 million project is slated for fiscal year 24, according to the Virginia Department of Transportation's six-year improvement program. Another idea for the future here is a pedestrian bridge crossing Fontaine Avenue. Stay tuned to Charlottesville Community Engagement for continuing to pay attention to all of these details. And more details coming your way in the next two segments. The Buildings and Grounds Committee at the University of Virginia have granted their approval of a new audio-visual system for Scott Stadium, where the men's football team plays several times a year. The existing scoreboard was built in 2009. 
Here's Alice Roche, the University of Virginia architect. So the existing video board measures 21 feet tall by 28 feet wide, and 20, 21 feet is just the video board. The overall structure is 54 feet tall. That's the second smallest such scoreboard in the Atlantic Coast Conference, with Boston College the only school with something with smaller dimensions. Proposed video board will be 54 feet tall by 125 feet wide, which will place us in the top three for the ACC with Clemson and Florida State. The project has a cost of $13.8 million. There will be an advertising opportunity on the rear side of the school board. The Charlottesville Planning Commission spent five hours on Thursday, September 14, 2023, holding a public hearing at which dozens of people spoke. Before it got underway, the city's Director of Neighborhood Development Services set the stage for this act of the Seville Plans Together initiative. Here's James Fries. As you recall, back in 2021, the city adopted the Affordable Housing Plan and the Comprehensive Plan. And now we're moving into the rewrite of the zoning ordinance, which is the implementation of that prior work. Both plans directed the city to write rules that allow for more residential density by granting more development rights. There are ways that property owners can get bonuses for various reasons, including guaranteeing that some units will be kept below market for decades. For this particular story, I'm going to assume that you as the reader or listener have some familiarity with the details. If not, drop me a line. Happy to help. Fries said the details of the development code could shift. I'm going to say right now, I don't believe this draft that we have before us is our final draft. I believe we'll see uh, changes over the course of this adoption process and indeed over the course of the future as we respond to changing conditions in the city. City Council Chambers was packed with people who wanted to speak with a spillover room set up in city space. All speakers were restricted to two minutes. This particular story can't capture all of them, but the video is waiting for completists to watch. Here is a selection from the first 10 of 110 speakers. Here's Robin Kells of the Jefferson Park Avenue neighborhood. I am not opposed to increasing residential density. In fact, I applaud that. I applaud the acknowledgement that our community needs more affordable dwelling spaces, more accessible amenities, but we need to be very careful in how this is achieved. Kells said many in her neighborhood feel they have not been heard during the process, and she urged more engagement with the community. Her property on Westerly Avenue would go from R2U to the new Residential Mixed Youth 3. That would allow unlimited residential density and a maximum building height of 72 feet, as well as many commercial uses without a special use permit. The property is also very close to the Fontaine Research Center and is off of Fontaine Avenue, a street that is set to be updated as part of a smart scale project approved by the Commonwealth Transportation Board. The third speaker sought for property near another border with Albemarle County to remain at the lowest residential zoning possible. Here is Diane Walkett. Maintain, do not change the current RA zoning in the Greenbrier neighborhood, specifically the entrance onto Greenbrier Avenue from Railroad and the length of Tarleton Drive until where it crosses Banbury Street. We oppose the potential zoning changes because this area of Greenbrier, this street, Tarleton Drive in particular, is a family-focused part of Charlottesville that is populated by those who want their children to be able to safely walk to Greenbrier Elementary School. 
A strip of Rio Road within city limits between Denise Lane and Greenbrier Terrace is zoned as Corridor Mixed Use 5. This is across the street from an area of Albemarle County known as Gasoline Alley. The fourth speaker was Valerie Long, an attorney with Williams Mullen, speaking on behalf of the owner of Nine Parcels at the corner of Lexington Avenue, East High Street, and 9th Street Northeast. Long sought consistency and pointed out that the future land use map designated all nine as urban mixed use. As you know, the map provides that urban mixed-use node is appropriate for up to 10 stories. The property supports the higher zoning and is consistent with zoning proposed nearby, but the draft zoning map continues to propose the zoning as a mixture of NX10, NX8, and CX8. Five years ago, the developer submitted a site plan under the existing zoning for a two-phase project with a five-story office building and a 56-unit apartment building. Long noted that council and the planning commission agreed at a work session over the summer to designate a portion of the former Martha Jefferson Hospital site as NX-10. The fifth speaker said he has had a lot of experience watching Charlottesville change and grow. Here is Doug Turnbull of Robinson Woods Drive. My great uncle Knox lived on Chancellor Street for a time. This home has now become student apartments. My dad would visit my Aunt Kitty on Brandon Avenue where she owned an acre of land. He would walk to the drugstore at the corner for an ice cream. Brandon Avenue has had a massive influx of housing development. Over the decades, the area has changed a lot, and I think mostly for the better. New students and neighbors can be a great thing. I fear what will happen if we suddenly stop change and stop growth. Turnbull's house was built in 2000 as part of a planned unit development approved by city council. One idea of the PUD process is to allow for customized zonings to allow more building space on smaller lots. The new zoning would do away with the planned unit development process. As an aside, there are 15 addresses on Brandon Avenue in the city's geographic information system. All of them are now owned by the rector and visitors of the University of Virginia. The University of Virginia Foundation spent millions over many years to purchase the land. There's only one privately owned building in the area, and that's on Monroe Lane. Jonathan Rice of the Little High Street neighborhood expressed skepticism that eliminating parking requirements in residential neighborhoods will have the desired effect of discouraging people from driving. I'm very skeptical that reducing parking in itself is going to get us to a place where we're actually less dependent upon cars. Um, I think it's really just going to annoy a lot of people and be actually harmful to many uh, city residents. Another Greenbrier resident And the ninth speaker overall said he was concerned that the Seville Plans Together initiative has turned into something for which it may not have been intended. Here's Eric Gunderson of Yorktown Drive. As this came underway, it was under the auspices of primarily affordability, and it seems like affordability has sort of transitioned more into development. Um, It may be a bit of a bait and switch, and that if, if you want affordability, there may be other ways to uh, get to affordability. The first recommendation of the affordable housing plan was to get council to dedicate $10 million a year toward housing projects. The draft plan also requires one in 10 housing units in non-residential districts to be guaranteed as below market rate, a requirement known as inclusionary zoning. 
The 10th speaker is a woman who lives in the woolen mills who expressed support for the draft code. Here is Elizabeth Stark. I'm a renter who lives in dense housing, and I've raised my children here, and I love my neighborhood too, and I would love to have more neighbors and better use the land uh, in this neighborhood to accommodate many more people. Stark called for more density in neighborhoods that excluded minorities through racial covenants and also called for protections for people who live in neighborhoods where they are at a high risk of displacement specifically historically black neighborhoods and the places where those historically black neighborhoods abut commercial areas. These neighborhoods have already borne the brunt of Charlottesville's growth and many who have lived here for generations have been displaced. Please provide an anti-displacement overlay for these so-called sensitive neighborhoods. Such an overlay had been considered during the draft stage of the zoning code development, but was removed for a variety of factors. Despite whatever the future zoning might be, properties in these areas have continued to sell at very high prices. For instance, last week I reported in my summary of July property transactions of one sale, which I'm going to repeat here. A house originally built in 1939 on 10 1⁄2 Street and fully renovated in 2018 sold for $510,000. That's 14.35% over the 2022 assessment of $446,000 and 4.59% over the 2023 assessment of $487,600. The seller is an entity called 326 10.5 Street LLC. That's an entity that formed two and a half years after an individual bought the property for $90,000 on January 17, 2017. The assessed value in 2017 was $153,700. This is the second similar transaction by this seller in the past two and a half years of doing this work. Go back to May 24, 2022 for the other one, and I know where the other ones are. So that's selections from 10 speakers with more to come. There is a lot of complexity and nuance, and my hope is to continue writing as much as I can. The Planning Commission deliberated yesterday and has another session lined up for September 26th. Council will then begin their deliberation. Soon after that, maybe adoption? Who knows what it will look like? I can tell you where the best coverage is going to come from. That's from me, Charlottesville Community Engagement. And that's the end of number 580, a longer edition of the podcast that wraps in some of 579. And I am amazed at how much I put out each week, and it's overwhelming. And of course, as you know, this podcast is longer than they usually are because of the snafu from a couple of days ago. Here's what I got to say to you today. I want you to go to infocivil.com. It is a new theme. It looks a little bit different. I want you guys to click on it. Tell me what you think. What should I change? What's missing? Critique this thing. You guys are the podcast listeners, which means you're the ones who probably care the most about this stuff and Town Crier Productions. So in this particular edition, not only did you get those other two segments, you get the bit at the end that doesn't match the other bit at the end in the newsletter. Because you're the podcast people, you're the best, and thank you. Tell your friends, and goodbye. <laughs>